Thank you for joining the podcast of Life Church in Perry, Georgia. Hey everyone, Pastor Tim McLaughlin here. So glad you joined our podcast. Hope you're enjoying these. I missed last week. I don't know if I told you the week before that that I was going to be on vacation. And if I did not, I apologize. But uh, uh, my wife and I got away for our 26th anniversary. We had a great time. And uh, so therefore, I did not do a podcast last week. But hey, I'm doing one this week. And I'm glad that you're tuning in. We're going to continue on with our series, our expository teaching on the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 4 today. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 13. Romans chapter 4 beginning in verse 13. We're going to try to finish off Romans chapter 4 today. Uh, Last time we discussed these things, we discussed the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 4. and We talked about the four main questions that the Apostle Paul asked in Romans chapter 3. And then we begin to look at uh, the question that he asked in Romans chapter 4, the fifth question that he asked. And that question is this, does the gospel agree with the teachings of the Old Testament? That, that was essentially the question that Paul is asking as he's writing this letter to this church in Rome. He's asking them the question as, as if you believe uh, in what I'm saying, if you're, if you're getting a hold of what I'm teaching, if you don't understand these things, then, then how does what the Old Testament has to say about what I'm telling you line up with? And so in our discussion, we looked at how Paul used Abraham and David as his witnesses to prove that the Gospels are in complete unity. They're incomplete. The, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament are in complete harmony with one another. I make this comment quite often that the, the Old Testament are types and shadows of the New Testament. And we saw that last time when we covered the first 12 verses. We looked at Abraham, which uh, the Jews considered their, 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 their father, the, the heir of all. And we'll look at that again today. And then also King David, the, the king, the, the, the king in whose lineage Jesus came from. How, how was it that Abraham and David were accounted as righteous? It was by their faith. Faith for Abraham and faith for David was looking forward to the cross. Today, you and I, by faith, we have to look back at the cross. We understand it's not by our works that we're saved, but by faith. And because of our faith that we're saved, therefore our works come because of our faith. We finished off last time, verse 12 says, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had, while still uncircumcised. He says, to those who not only. Now we're going to pick up in verse 13. For this promise, for the promise, I should say, that he would be the heir of the whole world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
So again, verse 12 says, to those who not only, and then in verse 13 he says that this promise, this this promise of being the heir of the whole world was not just through the seed of the law, but to all the world through the righteousness of faith. As Paul writes this letter, he tries to chase every possible objection down. Understand, he's not been to Rome. He has not met those that are in the church in Rome. So he's got one chance, one opportunity, one letter to make a great impression, one opportunity to share all of his thoughts and all of his beliefs to get this church that is in Rome, that's in the Mecca, the capital of the then known world, to, to, to truly grasp a hold of and, and buy into what Paul's saying. So Paul, in, in all of his um, education and all of his being led by the Holy Spirit, he's trying to overcome every objection. He's trying to think of whatever question they may have as they're reading his letter. And so as he as he's looking at these things, he, he deals with the objection that the blessing came through the law and that therefore the Gentiles who did not know the law, were they then cursed? John chapter 7 verse 45 through 49 says this, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him, Jesus, to us? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Pharisees are trying to say because people are not living according to the law, because they're not following the law, because they're not Jews, because they are Gentiles in their believing and not under the law, then they're accursed. God promised that Abraham would become the father of a great nation and that in him all, everybody say all, all the families of the earth would be blessed, not just the Jews. In Genesis chapter 2, or 12 rather, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, it says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Jewish nation, not just the children of Israel, all the families of the earth. Genesis 15, 5 says, Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars If you are able to number them, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Listen, there are more stars in the sky. There are more sand particles on the shore than there are Jews, children of Israel. God is saying all the world. Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 and 18. Blessings I will bless you and multiply will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See, the promise that was given to Abraham 
was given 430 years before the law was given to Moses. The Pharisees were more concerned with the law. They were trying to say that if you weren't under the law, if you weren't living by the law, then you were accursed. But yet God spoke to Abraham 430 years before the law was ever written. And he said, because of your faith, I will bless you and I will make you a great nation to all the nations of the world. The promise was not contingent upon Abraham's obedience to the law because the law had not yet been written. It was an unconditional promise. The word promise may be translated from either of two Greek words. And I'm going to butcher these words, so just understand this right off the top. The first word promise is hypochisis. The second word promise that we find is the word epigilia. The first word is a word dealing with promise that is made with a condition. But the second word, epigilia, is made unconditionally. It is the second word right here that the Apostle Paul uses in verse 13, God's promise was not based on merit, but strictly on grace. The law dealt with the conduct of people who are already in a covenant relationship with God. But the promise was that Abraham should be heir of the whole world. So many times the Pharisees and so many times the, the, the teachers of that time they would look at things in geographical terms. They would look at things as the inheritance of a land that was east of the Mediterranean. They would look at people that were of a certain section, uh, Jews of, uh, of Israel only. But Abraham's inheritance is not limited to such boundaries. God did not limit Abraham by just a specific landmass only or a specific group of people only. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him in the same promise. For he waited for the city which was whose foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Listen, Abraham wasn't going out looking for a specific place, Israel. Abraham was going out looking for a place and whose foundation and builder was God. He was looking for a heavenly inheritance. He was not looking for a landmass east of the Mediterranean. He was looking for a place in heaven that God was building and God was creating for his children. Abraham had two seeds. One was the seed of the law, Ishmael. Genesis 16, 2 says, So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go to the, my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. That was the, that was the seed of the law. 
But there's another seed, and it's the seed of faith. It is the seed of Isaac. In Genesis 21, 1 and 2, it says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age and at the set time in which God had spoken to him. This was the seed of faith. The seed of the law was something that Abraham was trying to do in and of himself. Sarai was impatient. Sarai did not believe, so Sarai gave her maidservant to Abraham so that she could have a, 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 a son through this maidservant. This is the seed of the law. But Abraham believed by faith, and therefore Isaac was the seed of that faith. The best use of the word seed is translated in Galatians chapter 3 and 16. And this helps give us better understanding to Genesis 17, 7 and 8. In Galatians 3, 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. In Genesis 17, verses 7 through 8, it says, And I will establish and make a covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God into you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and to your descendants after you the land which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, I will be their God. So we look here, and again, he's talking about seeds. In Galatians, he talks about the seed of promise, capital S, talking about the lineage of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 17, he begins to, God is talking to him. He says, my covenant will between be between you and your descendants and generations. But then he even takes it further than that. And he says, I will be their God. Jesus Christ will be their Savior. I will always be their heir. The expression heir of the world means that he would be a father of believing Gentiles as well as believing Jews. That he would be the father, heir of many nations and not just a Jewish nation. In its fullest sense, the word promise is an everlasting possession. This is is a promise that will be fulfilled when Jesus, which is Abraham's seed, takes the scepter and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, this promise is not of just a seed of Israel, not just as a seed of a specific land, but a seed of an everlasting promise through Christ Jesus, our Lord. In verse 14, it says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. If those who seek God's blessing and particularly the blessing of justification are able to inherit it on the basis of law keeping, then what he's saying is faith is then made void and the promise no effect. Faith is set aside because it is a principle that is completely opposite of the law. 
Faith is a matter of believing. The law is a matter of doing. The promise would then be worthless because it would be based on conditions that no one is able to meet. So it's not about the, this, this promise on do you obey the law? Are you of a certain uh, lineage? Were you born to a certain Jewish family? But it's of the promise of do you believe that Abraham was the father of all the nations because of faith? Romans 4.15, it says, Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law brings about God's wrath, not God's blessing. The, the law condemns those who fail to keep its commandments perfectly and continuously. And since no one can do that, no one can keep all the laws at all the time, then all who are under the law are then condemned to death. It is impossible to be under the law without being under the curse. God's promise is by grace through faith. In contrast, the law cannot fulfill the promise. The law can diagnose disease or ailments, but cannot affect a cure. The law condemns, but cannot save. Transgression means the violation of a known law. Paul does not say, however, that there is no law or where there is no law, there's no sin. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying because there is no law, there's no sin. An act can be inherently wrong even if there's no law against it. Let me give you an example. If you're doing 50 miles an hour in a subdivision where children are present, even though there is no sign posted, that is still wrong you know inherently right from wrong. Now, however, it will become transgression if I put up a sign that says the speed limit in this area is 20 miles an hour, and then you break it. Then it's transgression. See, the Jews thought that they inherited a blessing through having the law, but they all inherited transgression. God gave the law so that sin might be seen as transgression, or to put it another way, so that sin might be seen in all of its sinfulness. The law just pointed out their sin. The law just pointed out where they had violated. The law just pointed out their weakness. The law just pointed out their, their, their ability to do what was right. It made it transgression. But they knew that they were already doing wrong even before the law. God never intended the law to be the way of salvation for sinful transgressors. Verse 16, Romans 4, 16. It says, Therefore, if it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. So again, Paul's talking about Abraham is the father of us all, not just the Jews. Because the law produces God's wrath and not his justification, God determined that he would save men, all men, by grace through faith. 
He would give eternal life as a free, undeserved gift to ungodly sinners who receive it by simple act of faith. In this way, the promise of life is sure to all the seed. The promise of everlasting life is sure to all the seed. This is a good time for me to mention two words here that we need to look at. The first is sure, and the second is all. First, God wants the promise to be sure. See, if justification depended on man's law, he would never be sure because he could not know if he had done enough good works or if he'd even done the right kind of works. See, no one who seeks to earn salvation can enjoy the fullest full assurance of it. However, when salvation is presented as a gift to be received by believing men, they can be sure that they are saved on the authority of the Word of God. Secondly, God wants the promise to be sure to all, not just the Jews to whom the law was given, but also to the Gentiles who put their trust in the Lord in the same way that Abraham did. Abraham is the father of us all who are believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. Romans 4.17 says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. I love this. I love it. To confirm Abraham's fatherhood over all true believers, Paul injects in parentheses Genesis 17.5, where he says, I have made you a father of many nations. God's choice of Israel as his chosen earthly people did not mean that his grace and mercy would, would be confined to them only. Just because God chose a specific people, he chose them as an example. He chose them as a way for others to look. But his salvation, his grace, his mercy would not be confined to them only. Thank God for that. See, the Apostle Paul ingeniously quotes verse after verse from the Old Testament to show that it always was God's intention to honor faith wherever he found it. Paul constantly shows that the Old Testament and what he is writing, he did not know was the New Testament, but he knew that it was the gospel that he was writing to the church in Rome was in perfect unity and harmony. The phrase, in the presence of him who believed, continues the thought from verse 16. It says, Abraham, who is the father of us all, in the presence of him who he believed. The connection is this. Abraham is the father of us all in the sight of him, God, whom he, Abraham, believed. Even God, who gives life to the dead and speaks of things that do not yet exist, as already existing. 
um, to, to, to understand this description more, we have only to look at, at the verses that follow. Paul carefully crafts this letter in a way to constantly define, constantly bring to light that which he's trying to explain to those at the church in Rome. God gives life to the dead. That is, to Abraham and Sarah, for although they were dead physically because they were childless and beyond the age when they could have children, yet God calls those things which do not yet exist as already existing. That is, numberless generations that involve many nations. Abraham and Sarah saw in the natural that they did not have children and they were past childbearing years. But God made a promise to them that not only would they have a child, but they would be the father of great nations, all the nations of the world. Speaking those things that are not as though they already are. Verse 18, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Paul has emphasized that the promise came to Abraham by faith and not by law, that it might be by grace and that it might be sure to all, all the seed. That leads quite naturally to a consideration of Abraham's faith in the God of the resurrection. See, God promised Abraham generations as numberless as the stars, of the, uh, stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Humanly speaking, the, the chances were all but hopeless. But contrary to human hope, Abraham believed and hoped that he would become the father of many nations just as God promised. Hope. I love that word. I love that word hope. That, that is my stand on word. It is a confident expectation. Abraham had a confident expectation that he would be the father of many nations because God said. See, in addition to our natural parents, believers have a threefold fatherhood relationship. First, all of us are of the seed of Abraham. We're, we're all of the household of faith of Abraham. But then secondly, we have a fatherhood for the person who was used of Christ to bring to salvation. My spiritual father, my, my pastor, the, the one that poured into my life, he, he is he is also uh, uh, not my natural father. Abraham was not my natural father, but Abraham is my, my spiritual father of the household of faith. But then I also have a spiritual father who led me to Christ and discipled me. 1 Corinthians 4.15 says, For though he might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ I have begotten you through the gospel. So first father, Abraham of faith, second father, the one that led you in Christ to you, and third father, the God who begot you by his Holy Spirit through his word. See, the first two are fatherhoods of relationships, 
But the last one is, is, is that and even more because it's the fatherhood of life and life eternal. See, these verses and their context form a great and encouraging passage of Scripture. Faith is shown as bringing a person into right relationship with God. The relationship will in turn encourage habits of submission and obedience to God. For Abraham to be the father of many nations was beyond human expectation and natural possibility. But Abraham exercised faith. His life became a great example of faith to you and I. Abraham's faith was in God and God alone. It, it, it is most important to bear in mind that our faith is primarily not in a doctrine. Our faith is not in a fact uh, such as Calvary or in a doctrine such as atonement, but faith is in a person. Our faith is in who uh, he is and what he did by virtue of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. See, because Abraham believed in the person of God, he could reckon those things which be not as though they were. He believed God. He believed in the God who caused the dead to live and who brings into being even things which are not yet in existence. Without faith, there is no capacity for contact and communion with God. If you don't have faith, you will never experience the goodness of God. You will never experience His rich blessings. You will never experience His righteousness. People that say, you know, I've never heard God. I wonder where their faith is. How do they read their Bible? When, when people struggle with prayer, where's their faith at? Who do you pray to? How do you even have prayer? Without faith, how can you take this word and receive it into yourself for spiritual edification? See, the things of God are spiritual and invisible. The natural eye cannot see them. Faith is the eye that sees. Faith are the ears that hear. Believing that God could bring the dead back to life, Abraham trusted in the omnipotence of God. When God told him, look toward heaven and count the stars, so shall thy seed be. Abraham immediately responded with faith. He believed in the Lord and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. Verse 19, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. The promise of a son was given to Abraham when he was 75 years old and Sarah was 65. Obviously, both were beyond the age of childbearing, but the patriarch Abraham believed. He believed in the one who made something out of nothing as the one that created all things when there was nothing there. And in the one who could raise the dead as in the case of Isaac. The same power that brought forth Christ from the grave brought Isaac into the world. Isaac's birth is set forth as a resurrection from the dead in a sense, type and shadow. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11, 12 says, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. 
Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Against a promise that in the normal course of the events was unlikely to be fulfilled, Abraham and Sarah's faith did not grow weak, for he was fully assured not just wishfully hoping, he was fully assured and confident. God has spoken, and with God nothing is impossible. The word consider in this verse is the Greek word ketanoil, and it means to consider attentively, to fix one's eyes or mind upon. Many manuscripts, many translations of the Bible omit the word not, as in he did not consider. But this word gives great impact, great expression to what the Apostle Paul is saying. Abraham considered his own body being dead as far as its procreative functions are concerned, but he refused to accept the natural implications of his age. Abraham concluded that the certainty of the divine promise outweighed the natural improbability. Let me say that again. Abraham concluded in faith that the certainty of the divine promise outweighed every natural improbability. Verse 20, Romans chapter 4. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. The apparent impossibility that the promise would never be fulfilled did not stagger Abraham. God said it, Abraham believed it, that settled it. As far as the patriarch was concerned, there was only one impossibility, and that was for God to lie. God does not lie. Abraham's faith was strong and vibrant. He gave glory to God, honoring him as the one who could be depended on to fulfill his promise in defiance of all the laws and all the chances of probability. Verse 21 says, being fully convinced that he who had promised, he was also able to perform it. This verse may be the best definition of faith found in the word of God. Faith is described in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is described in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. That describes what faith is. But the definition for faith is defined right here in verse 21, where it says, being fully convinced that he had promised, he was also able to perform it. That's faith. Abraham received and believed God's promise. His secret was that he did not waver, but gave glory to God. Abraham did not know how God would fulfill his word, but he, was, he, was, he knew that God would do it. He knew God had every confidence. He knew God and had every confidence that God was fully able to do what he had promised. In one way, it was wonderful faith, but in another way, it was the most reasonable thing to do because God's word is the surest thing in the universe. God's word is the absolute surest thing in our universe. And Abraham understood there was no risk in believing God's word. Verse 24 says, And therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. God was pleased to find a man who took him at his word, and he always is. 
And he is, and so Abraham is credited with righteousness. Where there was once been a balance of sin and guilt, now there was nothing but righteousness standing before God. Abraham, Abraham had been delivered from the condemnation and was justified by a holy God through faith, just as you and I are today. Verses 23 and 24 says, Now it is written for his sake alone that it was imputed let me say that again. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. This historic narrative of Abraham's justification by faith was not written for his sake alone. There was, there was no sense of, of course in which it was written for Abraham's sake as a, as a permanent record of his acquittal. But it's, it, it does show his perfect standing before God. It was written for you and I also. Our faith is likewise reckoned for righteousness when we believe in God who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. The only difference between Abraham and us is Abraham believed that God would give life to the dead. We believe that God has given life to the dead by raising Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 25 says, Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The Lord Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and He was raised by, for our justification. Although the preposition because of is used here in connection with both our offenses and our justification, the context demands a different shade of meaning in each case. See, Jesus was delivered up not only because of our offenses, but in order to put them away. He was raised up for our justification by which we are now justified. See, in the first instance of our offense, where the problem was the problem that needed to be dealt with. Our offense was the problem that needed to be dealt with. But in the second instance, our justification is the result that it is assured by Christ's resurrection. Our justification is a result that is a that is assured by Christ's resurrection. There could have been no justification if Christ had remained in the tomb. But the fact that he rose tells us that the work is finished, the price has been paid, and God is infinitely satisfied with the sin-atoning work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My question to you is today, do you have faith to believe in the promises of God? Do you believe what the Word says even though you can't see it? Do you believe and will you worship God because he said so. Father, I thank you again for the technology that we have. I thank you for the opportunity to record this podcast. I pray for each and every one that listen. For those who believe, I pray that by faith they receive this into their heart and Lord, it strengthens their walk. And if there be one that is hearing this message and does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today they would pray. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Repent of their sins and ask you to come into their heart and be Lord of their life. 
that their minds would be open to receive all that you have for them. And Father, we thank you and we give you praise for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and have a great week. If you don't have a home church, we would love for you to visit us here at Life Church, 100 Todd Road in Perry, Georgia.